0: Good morning, church. Thanks. I'm incredibly blessed and honored to be able to present the Word of God this morning. Um, Blake had given me the opportunity to do this quite a while back. I think December he had first uh, come to me about preaching. And since then, I had been mulling over this uh, passage that I'm teaching today. And after I had finished writing the sermon... There was no introduction, and then I was reading a book that a TV show was based on, and I had to drop everything that I was doing, and I said, Brooke, this is literally a parallel to Romans chapter 2. This book series, the protagonist finds a journal, or a notebook, and he finds out that if he writes someone's name in it, they'll die in whatever way he sees fit. And at first he starts by seeking to eradicate crime from the world, and if you're like me immediately you should see the hypocrisy in that. He kills killers by obviously murdering them. So the hypocrisy was blatantly there. And though this may seem like a just cause at face value, it is not. And as we, as we are reading in the book of Romans, uh, we will see, especially in the chapter that we are in today, The Jewish people were judging based on their own moral judgment, thinking that they were exempt from God's law. Our study today in Romans 2 has massive implications, not just for the Jewish people, but the believers and the unbelievers alike. And a little shameless plug, we're going to continue in this on Wednesday because this also has implications for our evangelistic efforts as well. So if you'll stand with me, we'll do our scripture reading in Romans chapter 2 starting in verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, And yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself and willing to take our message, your message, to heart, Lord. We love you so much and we praise you for everything you have done, everything you are doing, and everything you will do, Lord. We thank you and praise you, and it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So, throughout our past few studies in the book of Romans, we have studied how the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. We have read that though humans universally know God, we reject him by suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Paul then would go on in the earlier chapter of Romans and list out some of those sins that would ultimately lead to a darkened heart. And early on in the book of Romans, Paul has a very consistent theme. It seems very gloomy, it seems dark and without hope, because without the bad news, we cannot have the good news. And so I'm going to go back and read a little bit because our modern Bibles have verse and chapter markers that break things up. It's good to get the whole picture. So I'm going to back up to verse 28 in the previous chapter. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And they were filled with all manners of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, And then immediately following that, Paul turns to the Jews who think that they are exempt from God's wrath. In verse 1, it says, Therefore you, pointing to the Jews, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And we see in Deuteronomy 7:6 it says, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So that alone, God's chosen holy people, that should mean that they're somehow held to a different standard than those who are not the Jewish nation. Absolutely not. God has come to them, and they rejected him. Now I'll have you turn with me to Jeremiah 3, we'll be picking up in verse 6. Jeremiah 3, verse 6. Jeremiah 3, verse 6, picks up by saying, The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did? The faithless one Israel... she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and there she played the whore. And I thought, after she had done all this, she would return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that the Lord said to me, the faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words towards the north and say, return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. God gave the Jews the covenants, the laws, the patriarchs, and he eventually gave them the promise of the Messiah and how he would come to them through the lineage of King David. And ultimately, God did come down, took on flesh, and brought the message of salvation to Israel. And what did they do? Rejected it. God stood before him stood before them in their midst and they rejected him and killed him. And this is why God has such language such strong language in Jeremiah regarding Israel because he loved them but because of their rebellion he ultimately had and decided to go to the Gentiles. Now throughout the entirety of the Old Testament we see a similar theme where Israel feared the Lord loved the Lord and drew near to him but then Sometimes following verse they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord consistent theme from the fall of man They feared the Lord and then rebelled against him I'll have you turn with me To Romans chapter 9 I'm stealing a little bit of Blake's thunder. I'm not going to exposit them too heavily But it's good for us to look at them to get the full picture Blake will preach this chapter Romans chapter 9 starting in verse 1, Romans chapter 9, verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish for myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. The distinction is no longer between the Jewish nation and the Gentile nation. It is whether you are a child of God by adoption through the Spirit a spiritual son of Abraham. Only those who are born according to the promise by the Holy Spirit and who follow according to Abraham's example of faith are his children. This is why with the new covenant God has redefined what it means to be the people of God. Those born of the Spirit and those are not. That's the distinction. And this was world-shattering for the Jews. You could understand why they would try to reject such a message. Now, we're going to take a step aside because going back to Romans Romans 2, verse 1, it's important for us to give a basis for what a biblical case for judgment looks like. What does it mean to judge biblically? Because Paul is judging these people in this section very harshly. And according to... What many people have said to me while either evangelizing or saying, hey, that's a sin, knock it off. They would say something like, judge not, lest you be judged. Or let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And scripture absolutely says those things. But people love quoting those out of context. So I'm going to read for you the context of those verses. If you would like, you can turn there with me. But it is Matthew 7. He says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye while there is a log in your own? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brothers. Now, it's very important to notice here that it does not say, do not judge. It says, look inwardly, get that log out of your eye before noticing the speck in your brothers. Verse 5 specifically tells us to judge. Help get that speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus's point was not to call out sin in someone else's life while you have unrepentant and habitual sin yourself. Doing so would make you a hypocrite and you will be accountable for such a double standard. We cannot help the lost escape their sin while we continue to live an unrepentant lifestyle. John chapter 8, and I'm going to go quick with these. You don't have to turn here. They'll be on the screen. John chapter 8, we see the passage of the woman caught in the act of adultery. The Jews come to Jesus, trying to use the law of Moses to say, what do you say we do, Jesus? So John chapter 8, starting in verse 3, he says, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin cast among you cast the first stone, throw the first stone. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. If you stopped there, it would seem you should not judge, but it goes on to say, Jesus stood up and said to the woman, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is an example as to why Paul turns to the Jews In Romans 9, he said that if he could, he would trade places with the Jews and being cut off from grace. He desires to see his brothers come to a saving faith in Christ. And God offers forgiveness and freedom from sin. We should be messengers of how to receive such a forgiveness. This message is extended to Jew and Gentile, those who are a part of the Jewish nation and those who are not. With God, there is no partiality. With his grace... It is extended to all, but so is his wrath. If we look back at Romans chapter 2, verse 2. It says, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. This audience, as they were pointing out the sin in others, were committing the same sins that they thought the law of God would not apply to them. They thought, I'm not a murderer, I'm fine. Well, the scriptures say that if you're angry with your brother or have hated your brother, you are guilty of the same sins. That's such a huge thing. I've been angry so many times. We're all guilty of murdering someone at one point or another. We have all fallen under that umbrella. That in and of itself is enough to condemn each and every one of us. And if we look a little bit further ahead, in Romans two seventeen through 24, we see some direct examples of how the Jews' self-righteousness condemns them. This not only exposes their own hypocrisy, but also shows what consequence blatant disobedience to God is. So depending on your Bible, it should be just a few lines ahead, maybe a page. But starting in verse 17, it says, but if you call yourself a Jew... And rely on the law and boast in God, and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of the knowledge of truth, knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The Jews would say that God's judgment absolutely falls on those who practice such sins. And each and every one of us do as well. We all have a sense of justice. We know that crimes deserve punishment. So deep down each and every one of us know and hope for a judgment. You would be hard pressed to find a single person who would say the atrocities of Hitler do not demand punishment. We all know deep down that we stand guilty before a holy God. Unfortunately, Paul's audience thinks that they are exempt somehow, but Paul hammers the point home using a reference from the Hebrew scriptures, Isaiah 52.5, telling them that God is blasphemed because of you. They were meant to be set apart. They were meant to be a holy nation. And God is blasphemed because of them. Because if this is what God's chosen holy people are like, who would want to serve such a God? But in this passage, it does not only apply to the Jews. It applies to everyone who is made in the image of God. Each and every one of us have fractured God's image through sin. And now we can only sin against God through our wicked deeds we were created to dwell with God and bring glory to his name, but continually we sin against him. And without the Spirit dwelling in us, our deeds are wicked continually, and judgment will fall upon us. We as human beings, fallen, broken human beings, tend to think way, highly of our, way more highly of ourselves than we ought to. We tend to see the sins in others while neglecting to acknowledge the sin in us and that all sin demands judgment. All sin, no matter the size, separates us from God. If you look back at verse 3, he goes on to say and ask a very direct question, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, referring back to the previous passage, the list of sins, do you suppose you who judge those who practice such things And yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? The key in this passage, this verse, in this section in total, is practice. There is a difference between falling into sin and practicing sin. In the original language, there is an active participation with practicing sin. This is vastly different than falling into sin and feeling conviction for it, because we as believers feel the weight of sin I can't accidentally tell a little white lie without saying, Oh, I need to go tell so and so that I did not mean that. That was the smallest and whitest of lies, but will separate you from the God who created us. The difference is the unregenerate willfully sin against God and could not care less. Those who presume that they will escape God's wrath are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And in doing so, they deceive themselves into thinking. That they will flee from God's judgment, because they view themselves as more righteous. Those this passage is directed towards would say that they're morally upright. They're good people. But if we look at James 2:10 through13, it says, "For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, "Do not commit adultery also said, "Do not murder." If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The one who shows no grace in passing judgment on the sinner ends up bringing himself under the same judgment. Paul's rhetorical question of, do you suppose that you will escape the wrath of God? needs no answer, because Paul had already answered that in the previous chapter when he says, God's wrath is revealed against all unrighteousness. This includes hypocrisy. Moralism cannot save you. It will only condemn you. The moralist in the passage that we're studying today brought to mind the man spoken of by Jesus in Matthew 7, when he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This passage, if I'm being honest, used to terrify me to none other, until I realized that this is not some... Brother in Christ, who one day was walking with the Lord and then the next died and was separated from God because he lost his salvation. This is talking about an imposter who thinks that they can make it to God on their own moral deeds. The good works cannot get you to heaven. Good works also do not cancel out your bad. The unbeliever who has fallen short in one aspect of the law is guilty of it all. In the eyes of God, the unbeliever's good works do nothing but further condemn him because he does them outside of faith. Paul then goes on to ask another question in verse 4 of Romans 2. He says, Do you presume, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God is restraining himself daily towards the sinner. He has been patient, he has been kind, and he has been tolerant. But the refusal to acknowledge that these attributes of God are meant to lead you to repentance, this has led many people astray because if you look at the current state of the church, I think we see something incredibly similar to what we're reading about today. The problem was just as much an issue in the early church as it is today. Too often pastors teach about the love of God and God's kindness while acknowledging, or not acknowledging that God's kindness, patience, love are all meant to lead you to repentance. Too many churches today are preaching a false gospel that only speaks of God's love and not his wrath. I hate to say it and I hate to burst the bubble That is not the gospel. If I'm being completely honest, and it terrifies me, that we run into too many Christians nowadays that do not know how to be saved. They say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Okay, what's the gospel? Well, God loves us. That is not the gospel. The same kindness that leads us to repentance is reaching out to bring us from spiritual death god 's love and kindness are absolutely a part of the gospel, but we must not forget about faith and repentance in Romans or Ephesians two it says this ephesians two: five even when we were dead in our trespasses well' oh, start back at verse four, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God." The same kindness that reaches out to bring us from spiritual death is meant to lead us to repentance. We are saved by grace through faith and repentance accompanies such a faith. Salvation does not come from an altar call. It does not come from repeating a prayer and it does not come from good works. It comes from repenting and placing our faith in Christ after acknowledging how gracious and patient God has already been with us. Every day we wake up, we open our eyes by the grace of God. This alone is enough to bring us to repentance. God has been kind and patient with humanity. He holds back his hand from pouring out his wrath on us the second we sin. His patience, however, has been blatantly taken advantage of by those who think of God as only being kind And only being love. But they must also acknowledge that God is wrath and justice. The gospel is a call to repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus. And repentance is not a suggestion, it's a commandment. God has been so patient with his creation and we see this in Peter's second epistle when he says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord is coming like a thief. When, and the then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and every earth, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And now we come to the last verse in our study today. Back in Romans 2, verse 5 says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. On the day of wrath, when God's judgment, God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Saw a video recently that supposedly Target had stopped pursuing people immediately after they shoplifted. I guess there's two extremes now. They either barricade and throw everything in shelf jail or just let you steal until you've accumulated a felony's worth of theft, and then they will get the law enforcement involved. Whether this is true or not, uh, there's an article on the internet, so it may have been false. But it gave a great illustration that that is just like what is happening with humanity. There's a record being kept in heaven of humanity's sins and it is vastly greater and more damning than we could ever imagine. God is keeping track of every sin committed against him and men should be terrified of this. Brooke and I were talking with Max and Cody the other day about the fear of God and I've been thinking, I cannot remember before that conversation the last time I talked about that. The fear of the Lord is too often neglected, and we need to be getting back to understanding that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Jonathan Edwards in his sermon titled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God said, almost every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself that he should escape it. He depends upon himself for his own security he flatters himself in what he has done, what he is now doing, and what he intends to do. The unrepentant man thinks that he is morally good and that this goodness can allow him to escape God's wrath. But unfortunately, good deeds are seen as nothing to a holy God but filth to the man who does so outside of faith. God is actively keeping track of both good and bad, and the debt of humanity is being stored up written down, and will be accounted for on Judgment Day. But our hope as believers, and we should be encouraged by this, is that the Lord has redeemed us by his blood, by the blood of the Son, so when Judgment Day comes, and it will come, we are clean. Our debt has been wiped clean. We can see this in Malachi 3.16 when it says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another, And the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written down before him of those who had feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Though we were once children of wrath, our debt has been wiped clean by Christ's death on the cross. We are his treasured possession. God has reached out to his children and said, you are mine. He is preserving us and he shall raise us up on the last day to be with him forever. I'll have you turn with me to Revelation 20 because we see this fulfilled in Christ on the last day. Revelation 20, verse 11. Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, So we can see that this teaching that Paul was teaching in Romans 2 is not a new teaching. Judgment Day is not a new teaching. I shared the last book in the Old Testament and the last book in the New, and it is found in plenty other places. God is going to deal with every one of us according to what we have done. For the believer, God sees his Son and his blood covering us. So when we stand before God on the last day or when we die... God does not see our multitude of sins. He sees my son save that man or that woman. So church, as we leave here today, please do not walk away thinking that this passage does not apply to us because it absolutely does. If we think that we don't see ourselves in this passage, we are deceiving ourselves. We have been saved, but this does not give us an excuse to be self-righteous. Our debt is no longer looming over us. We have the righteousness of Christ credited to us. Our debt is paid. So when we find ourselves being self righteous and noticing the sins in others before noticing the sins in ourselves, we need to repent. We need to get repenting. When we see the unrighteousness in others, we should be willing to call it out, but do so in love and grace, desiring that those who you are talking to would come to a saving faith in Christ. Our righteousness is not our own. We have no room to boast, but in Christ alone. When we find ourselves drifting into self-righteousness, how do we flee? Biblical community, the church as a whole, universally, not just our church, needs to start doing a better job about handling sins publicly. We need to start confessing our sins with one another. That way we can hold each other accountable and help each other flee from darkness and back into light. And not only do we need to be willing to bring struggles to our brothers, but we need to be willing for our brothers to bring their sins to us and bring our sins up to us. James 5:16 says, "Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain. The earth bore its fruits. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. And someone brings him back let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins now for the person who may be a Christian in name only if you've walked with a mask on of being a Christian but on the inside there is no change this passage is for you to the unbeliever If you're here today, this passage is about you. God has been patient. You think that your good works or your good deeds or the good things that you do make you a good person, but without Christ, you have nothing good and nothing to hope for. You have the wrath of God being stored up for you in heaven, and you will be held accountable for what you have said and what you have done. But there is grace. You can repent of your sins today and walk away being forgiven and walk in a newness of life. Mark one fifteen says this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray church. Father, we just come before you and thank you for this day where we could come and worship you through song and through the word. We just ask that you will be with each and every one of us as we leave this building today, Lord, we leave the church. We just ask that you will continue to grow and shape each and every one of us. Um, If there is any sin that is in us that has been unrepentant, Lord, that you will bring that to the front of our minds, Lord. If there's any hidden sin that we don't think is there, Lord, convict us of it, each and every one of us. We just thank you for sending your son that, through that repentance and faith, we can come to a saving faith in, that you give us freedom from sin, that you offer salvation. So again, we praise you, Lord, for your word. I just thank you for each and every person here, and we ask that you will go with us from here, and it's in your son's holy, precious name we pray.